You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We are moving into a new series. We just finished eight weeks of looking at a Tove church, a good church. What is it that uh, makes us a good church? And, you know, we, we could make the mistake of just saying, hey, yeah, we learned a lot. Now we know better. We have a much clearer picture of what a good church is like. Let's go on to the next sermon series. <laughs> Uh, well, that would be a mistake um, because it's not so much what we know, but what are we doing with what we know? And this is a process. The idea of talking about that for eight weeks was to say, here's where we're headed, not where we are. Here's where we're headed. Um, and so each sermon series in the next months, we hope to tie some of that into that process. And the end goal of that, by the way, in the Tove series, the last element we talked about was being more Christ-like. Uh, the more Christ-like we are, Individually, as a church, the healthier we are and the more uh, we reflect him. So there's, there's that. Uh, <clears throat> well, so we're moving in to First uh, John. First uh, John, a quick intro to First John. It was written by, this may come as no surprise, John. Uh, the Apostle John, one of the 12 apostles, uh, is the author. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, he was uh, not only a disciple, he was the only disciple, the only one of the 12 that was not martyred for his faith. The others all came to uh, the hands of death early on after Christ rose from the dead. Uh, but John, for whatever reason, God spared him, and he lived to be 80-plus. Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, he also wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote, uh, in addition to Revelation, he wrote, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Uh, just an interesting little uh, piece of information that he wrote his books last. Uh, Paul, in contrast, all the letters of Paul in the New Testament were written somewhere between 48 and 64 AD, kind of relatively short period of time after Jesus had uh, risen from the dead. Uh, John wrote his books like 90 to 100 AD, so he had experienced a lot. And it frames, it's helpful to know that as we look at kind of how he writes and the the theme of how he writes. Um, So there's that. Uh, The the defining theme to me, one of the the defining themes in 1 John is is just love. John writes a lot about love. And uh, that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, That theme dominated John's life and really had much to do with his transformation in his life. You know, when he started out, when... Jesus called him as a disciple. He called him, called he and James, his brother, together. They were fishermen. And he gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Uh, they were kind of dynamic uh, guys. Uh, here's going to be a leader of the church. He's going to do some great things. And uh, that was, that was kind of how he was known. Uh, <laughs> but as he went along, and when he wrote the Gospel of John 60 years after Christ rose, roughly, uh, from the dead, he labeled himself in his gospel the disciple who Jesus loved. That was his identity. I just think that's a, uh, a great statement. That after all those years, what defined him, what gave him value, where he saw his identity was not in the things he did for God, but in how God viewed him, that he was loved by God. That was his identity. Um, I would love for that to be my sense of value to Jesus, not not what I've done, not all the things, hey, 
Jesus will really value me, love me if I do this, 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 and this. But just recognizing, <laughs> hey, my value, my identity comes in being loved by God. Um, so that's a, a quick intro. Uh, two verses I want to use to kind of frame our discussion today. First uh, John three fourteen and 18. First John three fourteen says, We know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Kind of a stark pointed statement right there. And then John, or first John three eighteen says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Um, so that kind of will frame our conversation as we dig in a little bit. There's a, uh, there's a progression of love in John's letters that I want to touch on to give us kind of a start here in, in looking at, uh, we're really going to look at his emphasis on loving one another, what that means, how do we do that, what's that look like. Um, so he starts out First John 2, uh, 3 to 6, but I'll break this down into three pieces. First John 2, 3, it says, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. And I love the way he phrases that. Because in our Western world, it's, it's more about, hey, we know we're saved. Hey, we know we're going to heaven. Um, but for John, it's we know we're in him. We know we know him. We're in relationship because we keep his commands. His focus is not on salvation or his focus is on knowing God. It's being in relationship. And the second part of that, we know that we're in him if we obey his commands. Uh, and, and again, because of relationship, it's not obedience to try to win God's love. It's obedience in response to God's love. If, if God had a love language, most of us know, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, I think God's love language would be obedience. Uh, that's the way the Jewish world looks at the Ten Commandments. We look at them as kind of obligations and things we have to do to be a Christian. Where I think John is trying to say, hey, if you really love God, if you want to demonstrate, if you want to show your love for God, just do what he says. Just obey his commands. Do what he asks. Um, that's how he frames that. And then the next verse, he says, uh, 2, 4, and 5, just more to the same. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he says or does his commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. And then the, uh, the next verse. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And that's the key. How do we love God well? Well, we live, <laughs> we live as Jesus did. The more we uh, focus on knowing Jesus well and just trying to be more like Jesus in the things we do, uh, that's how we can be assured that we're in the right place. Um, he is our example. Uh, the word disciple, by the way, um, if you were in Jesus' uh, world, Jesus' culture, uh, there, there were rabbi-discipleship relationships. Same was true with the disciples and Jesus. And the mantra of disciples was, we know what the rabbi knows so that we can do what the rabbi does so we can be like the rabbi. That's the goal of a disciple. Um, it's not in what you're doing, it's to be like him. It's to be in a tight relationship and, and you become more like them. Uh, so there's that. Well, then he goes on, uh, kind of transitions that to being, uh, applying that to our relationship with one another. First John 3.14, repeated, I already said it. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Uh, anyone who does not love this way remains in death. Uh, 
And then John 13, 34, I just put that down there. John wrote this in the gospel. He reminds us of of what Jesus said. Uh, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Um, So it's it's all about loving one another. He says, well, you might ask, how do do we love the way Jesus loved? Uh, And again, John 3.18, let us not love with word or speech, or I would add in doctrine or theology, um, but in actions and in truth. Uh, So John makes a big deal out of this idea of loving one another. We can say, hey, I love God. We love God. But John would say, only if you love one another, only if you demonstrate love for one another. Um, Well, I think I've got a little phrase here. A right relationship with others is our key to a right relationship with God. Um, You know, we don't think that way in our culture that much. We kind of think of this, this is a personal thing. It's me and God. I got to worry about how I love God. But John's trying to tell us um, we can only really love God well if we love others well. And uh, that's what we're going to dig into here a little bit. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, well, it's relatively easy in our, if, depending on our context here, it's relatively easy if we limit that to those that we know, to our friends, to our circle, to our church. Hey, we love each other well. Let's focus on loving each other well. But I don't think that's what John is, is really primarily focusing on. Um, <clears throat> it's challenging when we look at outsiders. It's challenging when we look at those that aren't like us, those that aren't in our circle, not our friends. How do we love them in a practical way? Uh, you know, the religious leader came to Jesus kind of maybe with that thought in mind. He says, hey, well, Jesus, what's, what's the greatest command? What do I have to do? And Jesus said, Matthew 22, teacher. Oh, that's what he said. <laughs> Hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then immediately, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They're interconnected. They can't, can't say, I, well, I'll, I'll focus on loving God, but loving others is a different deal. No, he would say it's all the same thing. Um, well, then, as he said that, okay, i got to love my neighbor. Okay, so who do I love? Who's, who's my neighbor? Let me get this straight, because he's probably in his mind, he's thinking fellow Jews, those in my synagogue, those in, that are Jewish. Um, and Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, <laughs> which was really hard for this guy to hear, because he points out that the Samaritans were the, you could say, well, who were the greatest, who were the most hated people in Jesus' culture? They would have been the Samaritans. And so Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. Um, not just makes him look good, but he's the one who loves others well. He's the one who rescued the Jew on the road and bandaged him up and took care of him. Jesus said, that's how you love your neighbor. Uh, That was pretty convicting. Um, Well, so I want to look at how that applies to us, how we think about that. Uh, And I want to look at hospitality as as a key to how we love one another well. (laughs) And you, you may be thinking, hmm. Interesting choice. Hospitality. That sounds kind of watered down. Uh, you know, Kelly and Corbin have quoted movies before, so I'll just throw in my quote on this one. I do not think you, uh, that word means what you think it means. That, uh, that might be your quote. Because uh, when, I, when I throw out hospitality, I think what comes to most of us is the idea, again, of our friends. Hey, we should have them over for dinner. 
hey, we should get to know each other better. Hey, let's have a party. Let's invite the people we know. Um, and just that's our sense of hospitality. It's, it's in our circle of, of people. Um, but that's not how hospitality was defined in Scripture. Let's look at how the Bible defines hospitality. It's a Greek word, and I don't know Greek, so I'm not going to pretend to pronounce this right. So just pretend it's right. Um, uh, philo or philoxenia, Greek word. It's a uh, contraction, two different words. Philos or philos uh, means friend. It's related to Philadelphia or a brotherly love, a Greek word for brotherly love. And, but xenia on the end, foreigner, stranger, outsider. Hospitality, the very definition of it in the Bible is friend to the foreigner or brotherly love for the stranger, the outsider, the outcast. That's the definition of hospitality. Uh, you can extend hospitality to those we know and our friends, but the real value and meaning of hospitality is to those outside. Uh, <laughs> well, Jesus, oh wait, first, it's always been what God commanded of the Jews. Um, is, is this sense of hospitality. Here's what he says in Exodus 22. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And there's the key. I mean, he, God had just brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, hey, we're going to be a new nation. We're gonna be, you're going to reflect a good God. And here's a key to it. Treat those on the outside well, because you were on the outside once. Um, remember that. Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This isn't a new concept by Jesus. Maybe Jesus is just reminding people that this is what it means to love. This is what it means to have hospitality uh, to people. And so when Jesus came, he uh, literally lived that out. It was a lifestyle for Jesus. The more you look at his interaction and the things he did, uh, you, could, you could say his whole ministry could be defined as radical hospitality if we look at it in that definition. Uh, Jesus went out of his way to reach out, to accept, to honor, if you will, uh, people the farthest out. That was his form of, that was his lifestyle. Uh, divine hospitality would be another way to put it to the stranger and the foreigner. That was what defined Jesus. Uh, meals, by the way, were a sign of friendship and acceptance and relationship in that culture. That to invite somebody to a meal uh, would be to say, I accept you, I want to know you, I want to be your friend. That's hospitality. Uh, meals were a big part of that. Uh, if you look at Jesus' ministry, it seems as though the more you look at it, he's either at a meal or he's coming from a meal or he's going to a meal. Meals were, because that was his, that's who he was. You know, he wasn't just in the, there were times he's in the crowd, but most of the time it's in, it's around a meal. Uh, we look at uh, Luke uh, 7, I think it is. What is it? Luke, uh, Luke 5. He's having dinner with Matthew. You know, his disciples are walking along the road. Matthew, tax collector, hated, outsider, resented by most people. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Matthew, come follow me. Let's go to dinner at your house. First thing he does. Matthew gathers all his friends, his sinners, his other outsiders, and they're all having dinner. And the religious leaders are going, what are you doing? Do you not know that these are sinners? These are people that you should not be associating with? They're not part of us. Uh, but that's what Jesus did over and over and again. Another clear example, love the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, and notice it's not in response. Jesus doesn't say, 
Hey, you've said yes to me, so I'm going to extend hospitality. No, he extends hospitality before they do anything. Zacchaeus, another tax collector, far up, hated by people. He couldn't even get through the crowd to see who Jesus was, but he was drawn to this guy. There's something about this guy. Crawls up in a tree just to get a look at him. Didn't want to be seen, he just wanted to see. Jesus stops where he was, looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come on down for I have to come to dinner at your house tonight. That was his public first introduction to Zacchaeus. Everybody knew who, knew who he was. Um, they all hated him. So he goes to dinner at his house. And again, he invites his friends. There he is having dinner with all these outsiders. Um, <laughs> love it. Uh, even the last, uh, the last interaction between Jesus and disciples after he's resurrected, before his ascension, you might remember the story where he's on the, the shore and they're out fishing. And Jesus, hey, caught anything? Yeah, well, you know, Jesus has fish on the shore. He says, hey, come on in, we're having breakfast. Uh, his last act uh, before he ascends is to gather his disciples for a meal. Again, it's just, that's the way he engages us. That's the way he engages people. Uh, but the, but the, who, we, who was the target of that most of the time? It's like that was scandalously unconditional. That just caused so much controversy and questioning. But that's who God is. God is scandalously unconditional. God's love and grace is far beyond our comprehension if we really understand what it, what it is. And that's the way God treats us. God has radical hospitality for us because we were outsiders once. If we lived in Jesus' culture, we would be the outsiders. We would be the outcasts. We would be the ones that don't fit into God's plan. We're not part of God's people. But we, we would have been the ones he said, hey, come, come share a meal. Um, so with that, how do we transfer that in our culture today? What can that look like? What's Jesus trying to tell us? Uh, what's John trying to tell us? Well, I'll start by saying this has been, a, honestly, a hard, convicting week for me. <laughs> you know, you, you're going to share a message, and you're thinking about, hey, what great things can I share? And the more I dug in, the more I realized how I fall short and how I have allowed our culture, in a way, to, to mold me uh, to not do things the way God wants me to do them. Um, well, our culture, more and more, I mean, if for those of us that are older, we've seen this happen over the last several decades. Uh, we used to be a fairly, you know, our, our emblem on our money says e pluribus unum, uh, out of many, one. That was, our, that was our theme for 200 years. Now it's like out of one, we have many. It's like just the opposite. Our culture drives us to divide, to exclude, to demonize, to isolate, even hate others. Um, the more we look at it, if we, I'll just throw some groups out here and we can talk about that. You've got your homeless group. Uh, we've got your migrant group. 2.4 million new people, somewhere in that number, coming into the United States. Oh, they're illegals, migrants. Uh, we don't look at them as individuals. We look at them as a group, a group that when, when we can isolate them and, and uh, you know, treat them that way, we, we don't look at them as, as individuals the way Jesus would. Um, so what, oh, I'll go on, political, I mean, MAGA right, leftist, uh, you know, there's no middle ground for that. Oh, I hate that group, I hate that group, I hate what they stand for. We may say, I hate 
what they stand for, it becomes I hate them if that's the way they believe, that's the way they live their life. Uh, going on, uh, racial, certainly we've been molded into creating racial division uh, in our culture more and more. Class, gender, religion, Hamas, Israel war right now. Great example. You know, um, well, let me, let me give you a little. The result of all that, we lump people together. They're no longer looked at as individuals or looked at as part of a group. Uh, there's a, well, again, the whole Hamas thing. Oh, that's a Palestinian. With that definition, oh, that Palestinian, that's a bad person um, because he's part of this group. Um, we, it's the danger of lumping people together and not looking at people individually. Um, same thing with all the other things I just mentioned. So there's, we lump them together. Two, we have a fear of engaging groups because we see them all the same way. You know, I, I have a fear of engaging the, the homeless culture. I'll be honest. Like, because my picture of what, what's been portrayed, uh, gosh, there's so much drug addiction, so much mental illness, dangerous to even walk among the homeless. Because I, I see them as a class of people, not as a bunch of individuals, all with their own unique story. And uh, uh, so there's, there's that. Uh, and finally, we even develop a hate for. Because when you lump them together, it's easy to hate a group. Really hard to hate a person. But we get over that, making them into a, a group. Well, I don't need to say this, but I, I will to make it clear. Uh, media has been the probably the, the biggest driver, the biggest fuel of what's happened in our culture. Uh, we all know, I think, we all know that uh, media in any form, internet, social media, um, news media, it's all run, it's all uh, perpetuated by profit, right? We all know that. The more clicks, the more attention. If you stare at something for 30 seconds, it's worth more than somebody looks at something for 10 seconds. Um, we all know that. We all know how, how many likes do you have. You can start getting paid if you get enough likes. Get enough followers, you can be an influencer. You can make money. Well, that part we all kind of generally understand. Same thing with news. Hey, we get advertising dollars as long as we portray the right thing to those that want to support our view. Um, <laughs> so, but what we don't understand maybe... Uh, as clearly as the algorithms that are used to fuel all of this. Because the algorithms play off of human nature, and human nature tells huh, these people, advertisers and others, those that are promoting their platforms, the three things most uh, drives for the most looks, the most pursuit of similar stories, hate, negativity, conflict. If you can portray those, or if you portray those, guess what? People are going to look longer. Like you go by a roadside and see a car accident. You're going to spend more time looking at something negative just because it's fascinating to you. Well, the same thing happens on social media. You know, controversy. Ooh, let's get more on that side. Ooh, let's get more on that side. Hey, let's see what these people think. Uh, the more you like something. Uh, that's what drives the profit. And that's culture squeezing us into this anti-God way of looking at people. Makes it almost impossible to love one another if we are part of a culture that demonizes groups of people. Um, you know, it used to be we debated issues. Now it's about the person. It becomes personal. Um, so it's a, it's a very negative thing. Uh, I wanted to say, I've, I've been reading a book this week called uh, 
Beautiful Resistance. Great book. Everyone, give you the details later if you want. But a uh, pastor out of New York City, John Tyson, wrote this book. And, and in there, he writes uh, this I wanted to portray. I think he says it so well. It says, <clears throat> given the role of media today, the polarization of our politics, the presence of a 24-hour income-producing news cycle, we are told who is deplorable, who is worthy of respect. We are told who our enemies are and why they present a savage threat to us. Things are not presented to us in a fair, nuanced, or civil way. Hate has been cultivated one social media post at a time. Each 15-second soundbite or meme is training us to release our hate on our enemies. The trickle effect over time poisons our hearts, allowing contempt and bitterness to seep in and training us to misidentify our enemies. (laughs) Interesting the way he concludes that, to misidentify our enemies. Paul would put it this way. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What we're experiencing in our culture today, what I think social media and media in general and news, all of that uh, is controlled, fed by the enemy's attempt to point a much different picture of how to treat each other. Uh, God says, I want you to love one another. Our culture says, no, you hate this group. You can love this group, but you've got to hate that group. You've got to... Uh, very different. Paul also put it this way in Romans 12. He said, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. See what you're doing. Do things differently. Stand out. For those of us that belong to Jesus, this is, I think this is the message that John is trying to, to give us. How do we love one another? Resist the push of the culture. Go counter to what the culture is driving us to be. Um, uh, remembering again, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mentioned uh, oh, Romans 12 too, mentioned that. Well, what, part of, what is our response to all this? I guess that's what I'll finish up with here. Our response, I'm going to give you four ways that we can keys to loving others well. Number one, I'm going to throw that up there. First, be aware of the cultural pressure. Are we aware of what you know, every time we go on social media, every time we look at the news, every time, are we aware of how we're being driven to believe a certain way or to be confirmed in our way against somebody else? Um, again, that's the, resist the culture. Do not be conformed to what's happening because our culture is, is going completely against what God wants uh, us to do. Uh, part of that is remembering that we are the others. I mentioned if we lived in Jesus' culture, we would have been the others. Uh, Paul writes this in Colossians. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Um, So it helps us to look at others if we understand that we were the others. Helps to look at people not in groups of people, but as individuals all with their own story, all with their own identity, becomes a very different way of looking at people. So we have to apply, number two, we have to apply a Jesus lens, a Jesus filter to how we look at people uh, versus a cultural lens. Um, Do we see people the way Jesus did? You know, you look at all of his acts, gosh, that was hard to do. Go deal with those sinners and 
Uh, he really went out of his way. Well, to him, it wasn't going out of his way because he looks at every single person as somebody, I created that person. That person has value. That person I want to honor because I made them. I have a purpose for their life. That's how God, that's how Jesus looks at every single person. That's how he looked at us. He didn't look at us by the things we do or the things we represent or the things we you know, talk about. He looks at us as, I made you. I accept you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's radical hospitality. That's how Jesus looks at people. That, I think, is a key to how we need to begin to look at people, not as a part of a group, not to judge whether people are in the right place or wrong place, but know who they are. Um, if we honor them, which is a, another way, I think, of, of looking at that term, you honor somebody by saying, hey, you know what? You don't have to say this, but the way you treat them, the way Jesus treated them, you know, you know what? You are loved by God. You are accepted. I want to have a relationship with you. Uh, honor will break contempt or isolation or hate for people. Um, that's what it does. And fear breaks fear too. Perfect love, if we love others well, perfect love casts out fear. We won't have a fear of engaging individuals. We may have a fear of engaging groups. I have a fear of engaging groups. But, but that's different than how we treat people individually. Uh, well, I just uh, want to use the woman at the well story as an example of that. Maybe a perfect example that brings it all together. As Jesus' disciples were moving up from Jerusalem to Sea of Galilee, and it, and it says he had to go through Samaria, which was a bold statement because he didn't have to go through Samaria. Uh, he didn't say, hey, disciples, we're going to go evangelize the Samaritans because they're, they don't understand God, and they're, I know they're hated. So let's go talk them into what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. No. Jesus said, hey, you guys go to town. I'm going to have a one-on-one. I want to meet with this woman. She was an outcast among outcasts. She was a double outcast. You know, she was a Samaritan. She was a woman. Somebody had been married five times, living with a guy who wasn't her husband. That's the one I want to talk to. And just this, the one statement Jesus made, uh, hey, would you give me a drink? That's how he introduced himself to her. And to us, this almost sounds demeaning, but to him it was, a, it was a, a form of hospitality. It was like saying, will you share a drink with me? I want to know you. I accept you. That's what he was saying. And her response was pretty radical. She says, how is it that you, being a Jewish man, asked me, a Samaritan woman, all these barriers are getting knocked down for a drink. Um, but that's how he treated her and transformed her life. And her response to Jesus transformed her village. That's how Jesus showed radical hospitality, one-on-one. He always does it one-on-one. Um, great story. Well, we can do that. Uh, how do we engage people? Uh, how, how can we do that practically in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhood? Um, do we see people as the way Jesus does? You know, I, that's part of the conviction I had. It's easier just to avoid people, right? Um, I just think about the simple act of inviting a neighbor for dinner or inviting neighbors for dinner. Hey, we want to have dinner. Just get to know each other. You know, without it, it's not like this is going to be a theological talk. Jesus didn't go to have a theological talk with this woman. He just led with love and acceptance. Um, but that might lead to something. But even, even if it doesn't, it's, it's 
being Jesus to, uh, to other people um, by doing that. Share a meal. Take somebody to coffee. Um, I think there's simple ways of doing that. Uh, and I would say kind of along that line of Jesus and the woman at the well, put Jesus on display. Make your focus just, just trying to be Jesus in front of people. Treat them the way Jesus treated us, the way he treated people that he ran into. Um, I will say this. When we put Jesus on display, he's irresistible. Uh, when he had that conversation with the woman at the well, here, here's how he can, ended part of that conversation. The first part of that conversation, he said this, and it's been my, one of my defining verses. Uh, John 4, 10, he, and I want to say this the way I think Jesus might have said it to the woman. He said, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would ask me, and I'd give you living water. I'd give you eternity. I'd give you what you want. Um, that's what he said. Because if we just can put Jesus on display, we can be treat people the way Jesus treated them. That's putting Jesus on display. That's what's going to change people. Uh, I want to use one story to wrap up with. When we uh, ten years ago, I think it was, Judy and I took a bunch of college students on the fourth or fifth trip back to Africa, and we did. We went to the island of Zanzibar, just off the coast of Tanzania. Fascinating place, one of our favorite places on earth. But it's also 95% Muslim. It was the Arab slave trade capital at one time. Uh, 95% Muslim. And so here's, here's Young Life trying to put on a camp for Muslim kids. It was all Muslim kids. Invited Muslim kids. But they were already building relationships with these kids. But, hey, we're going to have this camp. Okay. Uh, we're going to have it in this Catholic convent. We're going we're to have a camp for uh, Muslim kids. And you might think, yeah. How does that work? That can't possibly work. And I'll tell you, that was a transforming week for Judy and I in a lot of ways. But here we were the work crew. We were on the behind the scenes watching what was going on. And you know what? At the end of three days, every single one of those kids stood up and said, I want to follow Jesus. If we just if we'd have talked about Christianity, we wouldn't have had a camp. We'd have said, here's what it takes to to be a Christian, we wouldn't have had any conversation. But we just put Jesus on display. We just told him, here's who Jesus is. Yeah, I want to follow him. Fascinating if we'll just do that. Um, so there's a, I'll leave it to you to be prayerful about practical ways, not dramatic ways, just how we look at people differently, how we take opportunities to engage people. Um, and Treat them the way Jesus would, just acceptance and honor. Uh, maybe share stories. There's nothing like sharing a story with somebody to create a connection. Because when, when you know somebody's story, you value their life, and they know that. Um, Jesus, when he healed, I just thought of this, when Jesus, when he healed a woman been hemorrhaging for 12 years, uh, you know, he's on his way to go heal this guy's daughter. Oh, who, who touched me? And he has this kind con- he turns to her says she told him her whole story. That didn't take a while. Stories are powerful. Um, So I leave that with you. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.